<clears throat> finally back home. This is my first class uh, since I've been back home, and uh, I still have to get my, all my hardware adjusted. Good evening, everybody. Welcome. Welcome to class number five of the Lays of Balerian class. I am very glad to be joining you, as you can see, in my normal habitat here tonight, and much more importantly, with uh, my internet connection, which is exactly a hundred times faster than the internet connection I was working with last week, uh, so I am um, I'm 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 glad to be home. Uh, after last week, I, I I was like, you know, I was I was ready to just like hug my router when I returned <laughs> to my house. Anyway, um, so uh, I'm looking forward to starting the lay of Lathian tonight. Um, I. First, um, some uh, um, some quick announcements. Oh, I see Yana and Arthur are... Uh, the, the chat room is off again? Oh, man. I'm sorry. I'll have to look into that again. As I had mentioned before, we're going through this long process, and there are all these tweaks going on backstage. Uh, I'll check in with them again to make sure that that gets put back. Sorry about that. Um, sooner or later, that this process will be done, and, and, and hopefully there shan't be more disruptions of that kind. I apologize. Um, uh, a few quick uh, announcements here at the beginning. Um, uh, fall classes, as I've mentioned before, fall classes are now open uh, for enrollment. Those are going to be starting. We're in August now, so uh, we're going to be starting in just a few weeks at the end of the month of August. Um, so our three classes again are Tolkien's Wars in Middle-Earth with John Garth. I've just been rereading uh, John Garth's wonderful book, Tolkien and the Great War. Uh, recently, I'm in the middle of it again now. Uh, I'm almost up to the Battle of the Somme, which is always... Uh, very moving, um, especially in uh, in Garth's description. He's such a beautiful writer and an eloquent speaker. Um, but uh, but anyway, I mean, if you've ever wanted to know more about uh, Tolkien's life, his early life, you know, I was especially struck this past semester. Uh, of course, as I've mentioned before, and many of you here uh, attended the class, um, my class on Tolkien's poetry. And of course, you know, it, it being me, the way that I did the Tolkien's poetry class was mostly just let's just focus on reading the poetry. So I kind of, more or less on purpose, said let's sort of ignore the context, forget about the date, and well, not exactly forget about the date, but anyway, you know, uh, forget about you know what was going on in Tolkien's life or whatever, and let's just focus on this poem that he wrote. Um, and I've been really struck by that, of course, uh, in in Garth's uh, book. Uh, you know, his the way that he really approaches Tolkien's work, he's very intimately making connections, looking at the the context. You know, thinking about you know, telling the story of Tolkien's Oxford undergraduate career, and then uh, immediately upon his finishing his preparations uh, for war and his being sent across to France uh, to fight the Germans, and um, he Garth, that is not Tolkien. Um, you know, looks at the poems that he wrote, you know, almost all of which we talked about in my class this past semester, um, but it's it's really, it's just so fresh and interesting to read those poems again, having just thought about them and read them a lot, um, but to be, to be thinking about them within the context that Garth is putting them, to be able to think about, you know, where Tolkien was in army camp at the time when he wrote this particular poem, and, and it's, it's, you know, it's a kind of analysis that I don't usually do. I'm not particularly good at it, and I, I, I and, and to be totally honest, I think that a lot of people do it kind of badly. Um, 
That is to say, very too often I find that when people are doing, um, are sort of making connections between an author's life and his works, there make that leads to extremely oversimplified and unthoughtful readings of the text. Um, that is, you know, it just, it seems to be in the mind of many critics a kind of a justification for not even reading the text carefully, right? It's like, the what's going on in the author's life gives us a kind of, you know, decoder ring, right, to approach the work. So we don't have to actually read the work carefully. We, we already know what's really going on, right? Because what he's really thinking about in this poem, obviously, is what's going on in his life at that time. So, you know, uh, uh, you just kind of project his life onto the work and Bob's your uncle, right? Garth does a really good job of not doing that, and I have a great deal of respect for Garth's approach. I love listening to his, and now I'm, I'm listening to the audiobook, which fortunately is read by him. Um, uh, so I, I love listening to his analysis of the poems uh, in uh, in in you know as he as he's thinking through the poems very carefully, but again within this uh, context of what's going on in Tolkien's life and with his relationship with his uh, with his friends in the TCBS, um, you know his old what in America we would call his old high school friends um, with whom he was still so close. So anyway, um, we. Um, uh, I, I just, you know, would want to emphasize that this class with John Garth is going to be um, just an amazing opportunity. Um, I think that John Garth is the is is the great. You know, he hasn't written a full biography of Tolkien's life, though I know he would love to do that. Um, but I think that he's just the the uh, the most sort of powerful biographer of Tolkien living. You know, that is of of, of people who are working on Tolkien's life and dealing with uh, with. You know Tolkien's own story and the connection between his own story and his works. I think Garth does it better than anybody else, and it's so it's just a really neat opportunity to be able to to be able to do that. Um, and then, of course, we also have the introduction to Anglo-Saxon. Don't think I need to uh, to sort of sell that and why that's so important. And of course, the Star Wars class, which uh, of course is obviously awesome. Um, anyway. Those are coming. I've got the fall classes very much in my mind, uh, and and again Garth because I've been reading his book, so uh, so that's uh, you know been very 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 present in my mind. Um, a quick reminder that we're starting season one of the Silmarillion Film Project uh, next Friday, so that's a week from this coming Friday, nine days from now. Um, uh, so uh, get ready with your ideas for how we. Sh- this is we're, we're approaching the big question: How do we do the Anuindale? How do we do the the pre-arrival of the elves portion of the Silmarillion story? It's going to be a really challenging uh, season to plan out. So uh, I hope you guys will be able to join us uh, for that. The, the initial discussions where we plan out the whole season are going to be really really important ones. Um, so that's uh, that's going to be that's going to be next week. Um, Okay, very good. Let's, um, uh, oh yes, Yana and Grifflet will be back in Middle-earth, uh, this Friday. So yes, I will be back doing my Lotro stream, uh, my, so my live stream of my adventures through Lord of the Rings Online, uh, you know, we're sort of talking, where I, as I sort of go through the game, look at the way, the sort of the choices, you know, both the visual and, and, and the story, you know, the narrative adaptation that they've done with Tolkien's work, and, uh, uh, and uh, try to keep my character from getting killed. Um, so, anyway, that should be... I'm, I'm, re- I'm re- really looking forward to getting into that. I had no prayer of being able to do that last week. I had less than one-tenth of the bandwidth that I needed to stream Lotro, so I had no prayer last week, but again, I'm really looking forward to getting back to that. So, uh, so yeah, so that's 
Friday. That will be this coming Friday at 12.30 p.m. Eastern Time is when that happens, and you can find it. Uh, this is It takes place on uh, Turbine's... Um, Turbine is the company that produces Lord of the Rings Online, the game, and uh, their their official Twitch feed, so twitch.tv slash LotroStream uh, is where you can find that. All right, let us let us go to Baron and Luthien, and as we start with Baron and Luthien, um, I want to go back to finally talking about the thing that I've been sort of teasing you with for two weeks, and that is uh, the poem Light as Leaf on Linden Tree. Oh, yeah, here we are. Maybe I've messed up my screen here somehow. Oop, that messed it up even more. Just the wrong button right there. Okay, all right, there we are. Light as leaf on linden tree, as I said. So um, so this is the poem, of course, that is inserted within uh, the, lay of, the Lay of the Children of Horror, and as you will recall, this is sort of part of that major Baron and Luthien upwelling that we were seeing happening in... Uh, um, in uh, that's the second version in his his rewriting of the Lay of the Children of Hurin, um, and this is it, to me by far the most conspicuous element of that uh, Baron and Luthien upwelling that we get, um, because I mean you know so I mean, we were looking for instance at how when the narrator of the Lay of the Children of Hurin summarizes uh, the Baron and Luthien story for context. Right, or, you know, context of why Morwen is thinking about sending Turin uh, to Thingol in Doriath. You know that 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 summary gets protracted and protracted. You know, it's, it's a super long alliterative treatment uh, in in the second version of the poem, way longer than in the first version. This, however, is way more conspicuous than that because here we see him doing something entirely different. Right? I mean, this is this poem is a very fancy, poetic set piece, which he has just, you know, ab- just grafted in to the Lay of the Children of War. And it's obviously not an alliterative verse. It has nothing to do with alliterative verse. Um, if this poem was actually designed for the Lay of the Children of Hurin, um, of which I am not at all convinced, by the way, um, I mean, uh, given how different the poetic approach is here, this reads to me like a poem that Tolkien was working on, which he decided, I'm going to put it in the way of the children of Horan, right? And I, you, you can justify the fact that the meter is completely different by having it be a song, you know, inset within the narrative and everything, so that's all fine. But, um, but I have a hard time believing that this really grew up natively within the lay of the children of Horan as he was writing it. And if it did... You know, if 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 he did say in version two, okay, I think I'll I'll, I'll put in a little you know poem. Hey, maybe I'll, I'll I'll have that one rhyming instead of you know being an alliterative verse, right? If that is how he approached this poem, then it got completely out of hand, right? Because this is far more than just uh, an inset poem in that way. And of course, as uh, as we know, as Christopher Tolkien mentions. Um, he did publish this separately in 1925 in the magazine called The Griffin. So, um, you know, we know that this this poem was already sort of sufficiently independent in his mind, even before it was sort of spliced into the way of the children of Hurin. Again, spliced is my theory there, but um, anyway, before it was inset within the way of the children of Hurin, uh, it, you know, he, 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 he clearly either already had plans to publish it or was going to extract it to publish it or, you know, whatever. But um, but anyway, this is clearly one of these moments where he is 
we can see him most lingering on the story of Baron and Luthien. Um, so let's look at this poem. I am going to try to be efficient in talking about this poem. It's going to be hard because I love this poem. This is this is one of my five favorite poems by Tolkien ever. I mean, I absolutely love this poem. Um, and uh, you will have recognize it, undoubtedly. This poem is the one which he revises and gives to Aragorn in The Fellowship of the Ring. Um, but I have to admit, I actually like this version better. I like the older version better than the version that's in The Lord of the Rings. The version that's in The Lord of the Rings is very good. I, I don't dislike it. I don't think it's bad. I don't think he made it worse by revising it. It does work better, I think, within the narrative of The Lord of the Rings than this version would. Um, the main difference that I would point to between this version, the old version, and Aragorn's version of this poem is that Aragorn's version is much less ornate. Um, the the sort of poetic fireworks that he does in this poem, which we'll talk about, um, are... Um, I, I, those are smoothed over. A lot of them are, are removed or kind of damped down. It's not as flashy, poetically, in Aragorn's version. And that seems to me appropriate. Um, this version of the poem seems to me a little bit too ornate to be a poem you just sing around a fire, you know, a, a, a campfire. Right, um, so you know, again, I think it, the version in the Fellowship of the Ring works really well there, but this version is really awesome. So okay, so let's let's look at this first. I'm going to read the first stanza, and the first thing we're going to before we even talk about what is happening in this stanza, I want to focus on the sound because what Tolkien does with his verse in this poem, it's one. This is one of the most complex and gorgeous pieces of verse that Tolkien ever wrote. Um, so let's look at how it, how it, how it sounds and how it functions. And those of you who uh, looked at this poem with me before in the class last semester will be able to help out. The grass was very long and thin. The leaves of many years lay thick. The old tree roots wound out and in, and the early moon was glimmering. There went her white feet lilting quick, and Dairon's flute did bubble thin as neath the hemlock umbles thick, Tenuviel danced a shimmering. Okay, first, the meter. What do you notice about the meter? What do you notice about the sound of the lines? Um, what do you notice? Notice how smooth these lines are? This is a really regular meter. And it's in four beats per line. The grass was very long and thin. The leaves of many years lay thick. The old tree roots wound out and in, and the early moon was glimmering. Um, four beats per line. Yeah, Arthur, totally different feel from the Turin poem. Totally different feel. It's a syllabic line, right, which means we're counting syllables, and it's in, it's in a regular metric pattern. This is iambic tetrameter, right? Four feet, two beats per foot, eight syllables per line. Um, same number as in the Lavalathian, by the way, same line that he uses, though not the same metrical pattern. Um, the grass was very long and thin, the leaves of many years lay thick, the old tree roots wound out and in. It's extremely regular. Very regular all the way through. He, he almost never varies from it. And you can see what's more, that he's obviously focusing on making it as regular as possible. You can, you can I feel, you can conclude 
fairly clearly from this first stanza that Tolkien is going out of his way to make it as regular as possible. Look at that last line, right? Tenuvial danced a shimmering. You don't say a shimmering in normal conversation, right? Why has he said a shimmering instead of just shimmering? To maintain the meter. He wants to maintain that even iambic beat, Tenuvial danced a shimmering, right? If you, he just said Tenuvial danced shimmering. Hear the pause there? You can't not pause there. Tenuvial danced shimmering. Now that kind of effect can often work really well. He does that kind of thing in, in poetic lines all the time. He's not just a slave to meter, usually, but here he's going way out of his way to maintain the meter. It's very fluid, very, you know, and this is a dancing song, right? There's lots of dancing goes on in this song, and, and it's very, so it's, it's very smooth and regular, for one thing. Second thing, look at the rhyme. Um, what do you notice about the rhyme pattern? These are eight-line stanzas, right? The whole poem is in eight-line stanzas. What do you notice about the rhyme scheme of this, of this, of these lines? What's the rhyme scheme? Thin, thick, in, glimmering, quick, thin, thick, shimmering. Yes, Arthur, it's symmetrical. So notice, well, the, the first thing to notice is sort of the overall frame of the stanza that is glimmering, shimmering, right? So it's eight lines divided into two four-line quatrains, right? Um, the first one ends with glimmering, the second one ends with shimmering. Um, so you have those, they're the C rhymes, it's the third rhyming set. Um, in the you know, you've got thin, thin, in, thin, thick, quick, thick, right? The thin, in, thins, ins are the A rhyme, the thick, quick is the, is the B rhyme, the glimmering, shimmering is the C rhyme. Um, so the C rhyme on lines four and eight, as I say, provide a kind of a framework for the entire uh, stanza. Um, not only do they ev- are they sort of evenly spaced framing the ends of the quatrains, but they're also multisyllabic lines. All of the C rhymes are trisyllabic rhymes. All three syllables glimmering, shimmering. Um, and we see that all the way through. Sorrowing, following. That's also a, uh, a, three, a three-syllable, a trisyllabic rhyme uh, in the second stanza, too. You will also notice that there's that sort of... Mo- notice the motif that we have uh, going there? That these C rhymes tend most of the time in this poem, with some important exceptions, uh, to be progressive verbs. Glimmering, shimmering, sorrowing, following verbs ending in ing is the is the is the theme of those C rhymes. Okay, now look at the A and B rhymes and how they're shaped. As Arthur says, they're symmetrical, right? A B A C, B A B C. See how that works? We've got those six lines share two rhymes: thin, thick, in, quick, thin, thick. Um, but but they're symmetrical. So you've got the, the, the ABA in the top half, BAB in the bottom half. So you have the two halves of these stanzas, right, which, which you know, sort of, again, pivots around the C rhyme. Um, they are mirror images of each other. So that suggests this kind of connection, this kind of relationship, so he can kind of play with that, the kind of the different halves of these stanzas in this way, right? And there's more that makes it symmetrical than just 
the rhyme scheme, right? Um, exactly, as uh, both Sarah Lagarde and Kate Neville are reminding us, he use he doesn't just use rhyme, doesn't just use A and B rhymes. He repeats the exact same words. Thin, thick, thin, thick. Lines one and two end with thin and thick. Rhymes uh, lines six and seven end with thin and thick. Right? So he actually repeats the same words. That's not laziness on his part. You might think, oh, well, that's kind of cheating on the whole rhyming department, right? Just repeat the same word. No, it's really much harder to do that than to just come up with a rhyme. There are lots of words that rhyme with thin uh, that you could use. Um, But to take a word pair like that, a non-rhyming pair like thin and thick, and work those those same two consecutive words into the end of the stanza, as you did in the beginning of the stanza, that's really demanding. Um, but again, invites us to be connecting the top half and the bottom half of the stanza uh, with each other. So, um, uh, yeah, and Sharon, as you say, not have the repeated rhyme seem awkward. I would bet, because this, this is, it is most com- most people, when you point that out, don't even, I didn't even recognize it at first. I, I know I didn't. I mean, I was, I was, like most of the way through this stanza, through through this poem, rather, reading it for the first time. No, reading it for the second time. I didn't notice it at all the first time. Only reading it the second time, when I was actually reading it aloud, um, was uh, did, I, did I suddenly be like, hey, wait a second. That's <laughs> the same. Because I was, I was looking at the rhymes. I'm like, okay, noiselessly leaves in the second stanza now. Noiselessly leaves country sorrowing sheaves. Noiselessly leaves... Hey, wait a second, right? And he does the same thing. He does this in every stanza. Um, so, to repeat this, but not to make it intru- to still make it flow and make it not intrusive, really, really challenging. The, the, this, the degree of difficulty of this poem is super high. Super high. Um, and yet, I think he really succeeds beautifully uh, there. Um, because again, you know, you can point out all of these sort of the ornate structures of the rhyme scheme and everything that he's setting up, um, but yet when you're listening to it, you you cannot even you know it is quite possible not even to notice or or consciously think about those things because it's so fluid and so beautiful. Um, uh, okay, now let's actually pay attention to what it says. A sort of go through stanza by stanza. Um, I will, um, because I, I'm going to try not to spend the whole class talking about this poem. I'm going to, I'm going to sort of highlight as I go through. I'm, I'm going to go through and sort of highlight is you know the major things. Do feel free to add observations that you have. Um, I'll try to get to as many of those as I can. But as I say, my goal is to not spend the whole class on this poem, which I kind of did when I we did this poem in my poetry class. I was supposed to do like six other poems, and we kind of spent the entire class session talking about this poem. Uh, so I'm going to try not to do that again. I really want to get to the actual poem, Lay of Lathium, before the end of class. That's my humble goal. Um, Okay. <laughs> Karita says, try is the word that stands out to me as you speak. True enough, Karita. Uh, Karita, of course, was there last time I attempted and failed uh, at this project. So, okay. Look at this note. Now, with that structure in mind, thinking about the first half of the stanza and the second half of the stanza, uh, and that rhyme, st- you know, the, the, the kind of cues that we get from that rhyme structure, 
So it stands at one. The grass was very long and thin, the leaves of many years lay thick, the old tree roots wound out and in, and the early moon was glimmering. There went her white feet lilting quick, and Dairon's flute did bubble thin, as neath the hemlock umbles thick, Tenuvial danced a shimmering. So again, we see the stanza divided into two halves. The first half of the stanza is about the forest, and the emphasis is on the richness, the ancientry, the depth of the forest, right? The length of the grass, the thickness of the leaves upon the floor of the forest, the the old tree roots winding all around, right? So we have this this deep, old, rich, ancient forest, and the early moon was glimmering. So you, I, I, lo- I love the fact that it's the early moon, right? Sort of the contrast of, uh, of the, you know, it, sort of the implication of of youth there, right? Not everything here is like old and ancient crotchety, right? The, 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 the forest may be ancient, and yet there are young and beautiful things afoot here, right? Uh, the moon, first of all, but of course the moon... I was going to say the moon is foreshadowing, that seems an ironic word. For lightning? For shimmering, perhaps? Uh, uh, Luthien? Anyway, because the second half of the stanza, corresponding to the first, now within this forest we have the the music <coughs> and magic of Luthien and Dairon, the dancing of Luthien, the the fluting of Dairon, um, beneath the hemlock umbles thick. Right. So again, notice how that thin, thick repetition brings explicitly here connects Dairon and Luthien within the context of this ancient forest described up at the beginning. And then Tenuvial danced a shimmering. So the early moon was glimmering, Tenuvial danced a shimmering. The moon is glimmering, Tenuvial is shimmering. We can see clearly the parallel that's being established between Tenuvial and the moon. Um, yeah, Sue Gifford says uh, the idea of feet being lilting is beautiful. As a dancer, that is an absolutely gorgeous image of lightness and control. Um, I agree, Sue. I think that that is a brilliant word choice for. Uh, uh, for the uh, the for feet for for dancing feet, uh, Tolkien is very fond of using the word twinkling to describe the feet of a dancer. Um, but lilting, I agree, is a, is is really a wonderful uh, word choice. The pale moths lumbered noiselessly, and daylight died among the leaves as Baron from the wild country came thither, wayworn, sorrowing. He peered between the hemlock sheaves, and watched in wonder noiselessly her dancing through the moonlit leaves, and the ghostly moths a-following. Okay. What do you notice here? Okay, we have the two halves again. Notice in the first half of the stanza, we get two things, right? The moths and Baron. Right? They're twice linked. The moths and Baron are twice linked within the stanza, once in the first half and once in the second half, right? The pale moths lumbered noiselessly. Uh, Ensu lumbered uh, is... Uh, is I-, I love that word choice there, the idea of a moth lumbering. I mean, the word lumbering just does not seem like... It's not a word you would normally associate with a flying creature. Um, but if you did... you know, I don't usually associate the word lumbering with a flying creature, but when I do... Uh, I, I, I would I, I would associate it with moths. Actually, that seems a perfect description of the the sort of heavy and clumsy um, 
flight of moths. But it is, Arthur, as you point out, there's irony in the fact that the, they're, they're lumbering noiselessly two concepts you don't associate with each other. Tom Hillman points out the lumbering is a nice contrast to lilting, right? Absolutely it is. Um, and of course we have, I don't think we can avoid, I don't think we're supposed to avoid the associations with moths, right? And moths are drawn towards the light. She's shimmering, right? Like the moonlight. They are drawn to her. Um, and I would, and perhaps you're thinking, well, wait a second. Isn't that a little ominous? Because, I mean, we all know about moths being attracted to light, right? That doesn't always end well. In fact, it kind of often doesn't end well, right? Uh, moths being attracted to light. So, is that bad? Is it creepy? Is it, you know, it, are, is that kind of negative or sort of cautionary um, association appropriate here? I would say it absolutely is um, appropriate here. Um, Baron, and that is... Notice the context of this. Well, yeah, no, okay. Notice the context of this. What's happening? What's happening in this story? Forget everything, you know, forget what you know from the Book of Lost Tales, certainly forget what you know from the published Silmarillion, but just from what we see here within this poem, What's happening here? Who's Baron? What what kind of story are we reading? Sarah King, yeah, it's a fairy sighting, right? Um, this this is a kind of story with which we should be familiar if we've read any fairy stories at all, right? Mortal man blundering through the woods, even lumbering maybe through the woods. Who possibly literally lumbering, right? In a different sense, he might be a woodsman. Anyway, he's 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 wandering through the woods, and he comes across a fairy dancing, right? And he is stricken by the beauty of the dancing fairy, and he's there. He's in the he's in the he's in the bushes, right? He's peering through the leaves and see just in awe of the beautiful dancing fairy. I mean, and that's Kate exactly as you point out. Um, the, uh, you know, Kate Neville points out, remember, the, the, the description of the first stanza is not a tended garden, it's clearly a forest, um, and that's, that's exactly the kind of setting in which this sort of thing happens, right? When a mortal wandering through the forest, uh, minding, probably, possibly, minding his own business, and then is, you know, suddenly confronted with this. That happens a lot. And it doesn't usually end well for the mortal man, Right? Um, if he's lucky, it'll usually end in his disappointment. If he's unlucky, something much, much worse could happen to him if he does, in fact, make the choice to jump out of the bushes and try to join in the dance or do something even more proactive, right? No, almost always, no, I say it a different way, almost never does that end well, right? And already in these first two stanzas, that seems to be the kind of story that we're in. Um... This is where I think the moths are important, right? Because that idea of attraction, of even, dare I say, a fatal attraction of the mortal towards the fae, um, the whole moth thing seems to work really well right there. And that's the context in which Baron is introduced. Here's Baron and the moths, both drawn towards the shimmering light of Tenuvio in this stanza. Okay. Um... Uh, and notice daylight is dying. 
I mean, that could be said in a lot of ways, but again, that doesn't sound good, right? Sounds a little ominous. Came thither way-worn sorrowing. He peered between the hemlock sheaves and watched in wonder noiselessly her dancing through the moonlit leaves and the ghostly moths a-following. Um, notice it was the moths who were noiseless, who were lumbering noiselessly in the first stanza, and now he's watching noiselessly, so we see him being connected with the moths again, right? Uh, he is sort of taken over the, noiseless li- the noiselessness of the moths. See the effect of the repetition of the same words, right? Um, uh, it, it really invites you to make those connections. The moths are noiseless. Baron is noiseless. Right? In case we weren't connecting with the moths before, we should be now. As, and daylight died among the leaves, right? So we have the death of the day and the going down of the light. Her dancing through the moonlit leaves. Day is dying. The moonlight dancing of Tenuvio is 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 rising, right? Is shimmering out in the growing darkness. Um, really, uh, uh, really, really cool. Oh, neat, uh, 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 neat, uh, observation. Uh, how do you pronounce your first name? Is it, is it a hard C-H? Is it Richel? Rick, Rickle? Rick? Is it Rick or Rich? I'm not sure which one it is. Anyway, um, uh, uh, is, anyway, however it is, you correctly pronounced your name, um, is pointing out the parallel. The early moon was glimmering in stanza one, and daylight died among the leaves there in stanza two. Uh, so, uh, pointing out the sort of uh, hard ch. Rickle. Okay, good. Um, uh, we have a sort of mingling of the lights effect. Yes, it does take place right at that twilight moment. Twilight being a really important moment. Um, I, I, you know, read Tolkien's poetry and see how often twilight comes up. It's, it's really interesting. Anyway, okay, good. Um, and what's our C rhyme? Sorrowing, following. Right? So we see he, he comes in sorrowing. He comes into the stanza sorrowing. He leaves the stanza following. Well, it's the moths following, but again, we know, like, Baron and the moths are like this. Right? Um, uh, okay. We're, we're just, we're, we're moving on. Their magic took his weary feet and he forgot his loneliness, and out he danced, unheeding, fleet, where the moonbeams were a-glistening. Through the tangled woods of Elfiness they fled on nimble fairy feet, and left him to his loneliness in the silent forest listening. Okay, so what happened here? Baron forgets his loneliness, right? And this is, this is a particularly poignant word repetition, right? His feet are weary from his sorrowing wandering, right, before. But now magic has taken his weary feet. and he, So he, his feet, which are weary, so we got his weariness and his loneliness are both forgotten and left behind by the magic that draws him out, right? Uh, the magic that, 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 that sort of grabs him upon seeing Tenuvio. But then in the second half, so again, this is another one of those stanzas uh, where the, the, the two different halves of the, of the stanza are really important. Right? The first half is Baron jumping out to join them and start dancing, and the second half is them running away, right? So he comes and they go, and again, that's strongly emphasized. And not only is that fact emphasized, but the effect of that is emphasized with that word repetition. His feet are weary, um, 
but his loneliness forgotten in the first half. And in the second half, their feet are nimble fairy feet, right? They don't have weary human feet. They have nimble fairy feet, and they are out of there, which is what fairies do. If you catch fairies dancing in the woods and you jump out, guess what's going to happen? At the, the very least thing you can expect is they're going to they're going to be gone. That's that's very canonical, right? And um, so they have nimble fairy feet, and they left him to his loneliness. And you can see the, uh, the 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 this this, uh, the, this the really sad correlation there, right? He forgot his loneliness and left him to his loneliness in the silent forest, listening, and the. Uh, the 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 shift from w- the where the moonbeams were a glistening right he is coming out into the light and then he is left alone in the silence right and with that emphasis on listening right he's he's straining his and he's hearing nothing he is all alone he's left again to his loneliness um we have again the first half of the stanza emphasizing you know the glory of their dance and his desire to join it, and then their absence in the second half. Um, still hearkening for the imagined sound of lissom feet upon the leaves, for music welling underground in the dim-lit caves of Doriath. But withered are the hemlock sheaves, and one by one with mournful sound, whispering fall the beechen leaves in the dying woods of Doriath. So what happens here? Um, who's this stanza about? This is really cool what Tolkien does here. Look at the syntax of this stanza. Still hearkening for the let's play a, let's play a game. Let's play let's play one of my favorite poetic games, which is Find the subject and verb of the sentence, right? Still hearkening for the imagined sound of lissom feet upon the leaves for music dwelling, welling underground in the dim-lit caves of Doriath. Ah, Kate's got it. Shit, get... Yeah, Baron is the one who's hearkening, but that's not the subject. That, that, that word doesn't appear, right? It's a trick question. Kate got it, got it, right? No, the subject is sentence starts four lines into the previous stanza, right? Through the tangled woods of Elfiness they fled on nimble fairy feet and left him to his loneliness in the silent forest listening, still hearkening for the imagined sound. All of this stuff is is uh, uh, modifying him, right? What is he doing? He is in the silent forest, listening, still hearkening for the imagined sound. So it was a trick question. But it's an important trick question, right? That is, this this whole stanza is about Baron. We could have started the stanza that way, right? He could have been like, you know, and there stood Baron, hearkening, right? Like, we could have gone there, right? But he doesn't go there. Um, the whole stanza is about Baron. Baron has been left alone, and how does he respond when he is left alone? He is the doer, the focal point of this entire stanza, and yet he's not there. His, that is, his name is never mentioned. Um, this whole stanza is one of 
<clears throat> desolation, right? It's not even action, exactly. Um, he's just hearkening. It's, he's waiting. There's nothing for him to do but wait and listen. So there he is, the center of this stanza, doing nothing, right? Almost invisibly, as time passes. Um, hearkening. Notice the first, the whole, whole first, you know, first quatrain, first half of that of this stanza, stanza four, is all about what he's listening for, right? It's not about what actually happens. Um, it's again like a memory. We see him dwelling in his memory on the imagined sound of listen feet upon the leaves. Right? We, we we're hearing about his imagination um, in action, right? This is what he's listening for. But starts the second half of the stanza, right? So again, first half of the stanza, this is what I'm thinking about and longing for and hearkening for, but this is what actually we get, right? But again, notice, the second half of the stanza is not about his actions at all, right? He hearkens for this. He's listening for this, but... And and again, you'd think the completion of that sentence would be, but he didn't hear anything, right? Or he didn't find anything, or something... That starts with the subject he or Baron, right? But we don't get that again. He's listening for this, but the hemlock sheaves are withered, and one by one, with mournful sound, whispering fall the beechen leaves. So the beechen leaves fall, the hemlock sheaves are withered in the dying woods of Doriath. And the connection with Baron, time is passing, but again, that the withering of the leaves and the falling of the leaves it does tell us a lot about Baron and what's going on with Baron, right? It tells us a lot about his state, but indirectly, right? Again, he's, uh, uh, he's, yeah, good. Kate Neville says the poem abandons him too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, what else is funny about this stanza? Not funny, but what else is weird about this stanza? We've, we've broken a pattern, big pattern in this, in this, in this stanza. Where? Which pattern did we break? You notice? The C rhyme. Look at the C rhyme. We get a trisyllabic C rhyme. Doriath, Doriath. It's the first stanza whose C rhyme is not a set of progressive verbs. Right? Glimmering, shimmering, glistening, listening, following, sorrowing. I did those in the wrong order. Doriath, Doriath. Well, doesn't that seem kind of appropriate, right? And a, a progressive verb, by definition, a present progressive verb, is a, ver- is a verb describing an action that is continuously going on right now, right? Um, what's going on right now with Baron? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. He's sitting. He's waiting. We could still use those verbs. I was just using present progressive verbs, right? But the poem emphasizes this by... We, we, do, we don't even get a verb. We just get a noun, right? <laughs> Kate, Kate, you're on a roll tonight, Kate Neville says. Tenuyo has taken the verbs away. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, there is no glistening. There can be no glistening, glimmering, shimmering, or following when there is no tenuvio around. And you can carry on listening, I guess, if you want, but there's nothing to listen to. Um, okay, all right, let's... Uh, 
Let's keep going. We're making good progress. He sought her. Now, finally, we get Baron back as a subject of a sentence and with an action verb, too. He sought her wandering near and far where the leaves of one more year were strewn by winter moon and frosty star with shaken light a-shivering. He found her neath a misty moon, a silver wraith that danced afar, and the mists beneath her feet were strewn in moonlight palely quivering. Okay. Um, he's seeking her, right? So we see him, he's wandering near and far. Um, we've got the emphasis again on the passing of time. You know, the seasons have passed. Uh, you know, a year is going by. By winter moon and frosty star with shaken light a-shivering. Once again, we start with the moon and the moonlight, just like we did in stanza one. We get the, uh, the, the uh, again, foreshadowing, the foreshimmering uh, of her presence, not only by the light of the moon, but by the return of the present progressive verbs, right? Shivering which is, of course, a particularly appropriate word to use of moonlight in wintertime. And then, of course, he sees Tenuvio again beneath a misty moon. Um, and uh, notice, again, the parallel. He sought her wandering near and far where the leaves of one more year were strewn, a silver wraith that danced afar, and the mists beneath her feet were strewn. Okay, so we have, he is wandering near and far to seek for her, and then he finds her like a silver wraith afar. Right? So we both the front and the back halves of the stanza emphasize the distance. First, in his wandering, which seems perhaps hopeless, um, but then, beyond hope, he does find her again, though still, the distance remains. She is dancing afar. Um, and the dead leaves, which were strewn on the ground during his search, so again, the emphasis on withering and falling and the passing of time, and now we have the mists strewn beneath her feet instead of the passing of the year. So there's this there's this sort of eerie uh, uh, sort of timelessness to the to the to the to the situation. You know, she's she is like moonlight in the mist. Um, we're no longer thinking about the passing of time anymore. In the moonlight, palely quivering. Um, Sue, what a wonderful observation. Sue says, if she has mists beneath her feet, she must be dancing above the earth. Can't rule that out, Sue. Absolutely can't rule that out. Um, it's entirely it's entirely possible. Um, that's what we'll see. Sue, so we'll see a reference to that issue later on. It seems that Luthien is perhaps capable of dancing in the air. She danced upon a hillock green. See, in fact, Sue, we get to it right away here, right? In stanza six. She danced upon a hillock green whose grass unfading kissed her feet while Dairon's fingers played unseen or his magic flute a-flickering. And out he danced, unheeding fleet, in the moonlight to the hillock green. No impress found he of her feet that fled him swiftly flickering. No impress found he of her feet, Sue, right? She's not leaving any footprints on the grass. Is she even touching the earth? We can't really be sure. Um, exactly, Yana, she might be dancing on the mists, on the mist itself. You can't rule it out. Um, Sarah Lagarde, of course, is pointing to uh, uh, Legolas's lack of uh, footprints in the snow. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, if even Legolas, um, who is far less lilting, than Luthien, 
I mean, no offense, Legolas, but come on. Um, yeah, you'd think. Uh, you'd think. So anyway, okay. So she danced upon a hillock green. Um, green strikes me as a really important word in this stanza, not only because, of course, it's one of our repeated pair, so we should pay attention to it, um, but the wintry, moonlit scene, we, you know, we had a, it was a very kind of black-and-white, silvery scene. Um, you know, a silver wraith that danced afar in the, the mists and the pale moonlight, right? It was, a, was not a vibrantly colorful scene, but now, as we appear to be getting closer to Luthien, right, and getting... Now, it's like life is returning, right? Now we get a green hillock um, and uh, grass, right? Grass unfading um, beneath her feet, kissing her feet, and may or may not be being pressed uh, by her feet. Um, Notice that the sea rhyme is also a repeated word in this stanza, or his magic flute a-flickering that fled him swiftly flickering. So we get... Uh, first, it's Diron's fingers on his flute that are flickering. Secondly, Tenuviel's feet on the hillock that are swiftly flickering. Um, so again, we can see the likeness between his music and her dancing. Um, the the sort of the the magic pairing uh, of these two, you know, of these two el- elvish figures. Um, we see the emphasis not only on the the again the sort of the the bringing of light and color back to our our at times almost disembodied baron uh, who 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 barely even got a pronoun before uh, much less any life or color and now you know and now he's getting those having found Tenuvio again but again finding in the first stanza losing in the second stanza as she uh, s- swiftly flickers away and notice how much. Um, Notice how much uh, worse it seems this time. That is, how much more hopeless it seems this time. I mean, last time she was dancing, he's like, hey, I'd like to dance with you. And she's like, no way. And she runs, right? And she's more nimble. You know, she has nimble fairy feet before. But I mean, now she's not even leaving an impress. And, you know, the grass is just kissing her feet. It's, again, it now seems much more hopeless to catch this person. Right, um, and in a sense, less um, less even. Right, um, you know, him coming out to dance with her seems more of a mismatch uh, in this scene than it did before. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Kate Neville is pointing to the emphasis on uh, the uh, those h- how many of the ing verbs we get uh, in this stanza. Um, yeah, yeah, and then and moving into the uh, oh yeah, well the next stanza is my absolute favorite. Um, okay, look at this next stanza because I'm telling you, boy. Okay. And longing filled his voice that called Tenuviel, Tenuviel, and longing sped his feet enthralled behind her wayward shimmering. She heard as echo of a spell his lonely voice that longing called Tenuviel, Tenuviel. One moment paused she glimmering. 
Okay. Look what happens here. Um, we get the same shape, right? The rhyme scheme and everything is the same shape. We Even the C rhyme is even repeated, shimmering and glimmering we've had before. We had that in stanza one. The order is reversed. Um, though even notice the effect of that. Back in stanza one, we had the moon glimmering, and then she was dancing, a sh- she danced a shimmering in line eight of stanza one. Um, the order of them has s- switched, but she's the one who's going at one moment paused she glimmering, right? Um, there was that parallel, that association between her and the moonlight all the way through the poem. It's almost like it's almost like nearing an identity, right? She herself is glimmering. It's like she is now actually the light source. Um, it's not just that she's dancing in the moonlight. She sort of is the moonlight, uh, actually. Um, of course, we've seen the shape. You know, we've been talking about those repeated words, line one and two, and line six and seven, called Tenuviel, called Tenuviel, the most important repeated. Couple, you know, repeated line coupling in the entire poem, right? Called Tenuvio, called Tenuvio. That is the very heart of this poem. Baron's calling out to Tenuvio. Notice how her name, Tenuviel, Tenuviel, is perfect iambic tetrameter when repeated twice, right? Um, that is his his. His call to her is as an echo of a spell. The way that his calling to her, and you know, the way that her name itself works metrically here to make one whole line, no wait, two whole lines, devoted to just her name, to his call. So, so again, the, the first thing that we see is that that repeated structure, you know, with the 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 repetition of the end word in line two and line seven. Um, is further emphasized by having the entire lines identical in 2 and 7. Tenuviel. Tenuviel. Um, and the emphasis on called, right? And longing filled his voice that called, his lonely voice, that longing called. And notice the symmetry there, right? Longing filled, that longing called. Um, and in the middle is his loneliness, right? Um, and look at the rhyme scheme, the way those that symmetrical A-B-A-B-A-B, right? The A-B-A rhymes called Tenuviel enthralled. The B-A-B rhymes spell called Tenuviel, right? So cool. So you've got called and Tenuviel framing enthralled and spell, right? Um, He called her and she was enthralled. Uh, She heard his echo of a spell, Tenuviel. Um, now, the irony here, right, this is a mind-blowing stanza. It might not seem like a mind-blowing stanza to you because you already know the story of Luthien and Baron, right? So you've been waiting for this moment when he calls her by her elvish name. Uh, you know, that's, again, what, how Aragorn says it in his version of the poem in the Fellowship of the Ring. So you know what happens. You know the turning point of the Baron and Luthien story is when he calls out to her and she stops. Right, and doesn't run away. And long ago she laid her hand in his, right? We we know this story. But again, think about it in the context of this guy. This is a common theme of fairy story, as we as it talked about before, right? But this never happens. This never happens. Now I'm not saying that it's important that there are no precedents of uh humans and fairies having a positive relationship, 
right? Uh, the best example of that, in my unbiased opinion, um, is the story of Sir Lanval. He uh, is meets an extremely and inexplicably well-disposed towards him fairy lady who takes him as her lover and her lord and uh, and they and and he screws it up and she forgives him and and they go off to fairy and live so far as we can tell happily ever after um, but uh, the going off to fairy part this that's from Marie de France's uh, version um, in her collection of Breton lays um, but anyway uh, that can sometimes happen sometimes like if you, when you really win the lottery you can go into the forest and find a fairy queen waiting for you who is for reasons best known to herself wanting to sleep with you and be your lover <laughs> doesn't always happen not exactly the kind of thing you can count on but that, but when it does happen, that's the premise of the whole story, right? There's none of this, like, and I'm peeping through the bushes and I'm seeing her dancing or singing, and then I jump out and I'm like, hey, can I join you? Um, when you do that, when the approach of the mortal to the fairy is clandestine, and when his intrusion is uninvited, it never ends well. Never, never ends well. And then here, bam, right? And the irony of that, you know, the, the, the shock of that reversal, that she stops and turns to him, is emphasized by the irony of that she heard as echo of a spell. Wait, wait, wait. He, the mortal dude, casts a spell on her, the fairy princess, dancing in the woods? That's not how the story goes, right? Um... If there's, there's, it's enthralling often happens, right? Calling even occasionally happens. But it's, spells often happen, but it's, it works the other way around, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Karita, you're right. She will also, it's possible that the Fairy Queen will have lunch with you. In fact, there's a pretty high correlation between if the fairy queen is waiting to sleep with you, she'll probably give you a really nice lunch afterwards. Or before, as you say. Uh, sometimes then it happens that way, too. Um, uh, yes, exactly. That, that is, that is, that, that's, that's one... Ver- but this, that's not where we are here, right? Um, this is the turning point of this... Not only of this poem, not only of this story, but in a sense of, like, Tolkien's sort of treatment of this whole genre sort of turns on itself right here. Um, and wait, but why? How? What is it that, what's the spell? Why the, in, how? The enthrallment? It's her own compassion, right? He, he doesn't actually have magic powers, right? Um, it is her own, it is the pity that she has on him, Again, remember the way that the, 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 the symmetry of line one and, and, and six there? And longing filled his voice that called, his lonely voice that longing called. When you've got... She, what, she, what, why is she enthralled? Why does she hear his call as the echo of his spell? Because what she hears in his call is loneliness surrounded by longing. Right? 
um, loneliness embedded within longing, and she hears that, and she pities that. Um, and, well, and what happens? And Baron caught that elfin maid, and kissed her trembling starlit eyes, to Nuviel, whom love delayed in the woods of evening morrowless. Till moonlight and till music dies, shall Baron, by the elfin maid, dance in the starlight of her eyes, in the forest singing sorrowless. You'll of course notice what happened with our sea rhymes here. We've changed from, this is now the second time, that we have deviated from the ing progressive verbs, right? First was in stanza four with the doriath doriath. Now we shift to morrowless and sorrowless. Right? Really cool. The less ending. Um, uh, you notice how both of them work. We don't have any more like the trade-off. You know the symmetry from one half. The the two halves of the stanza are working together. Right. The first stanza talks about the present tense, right? What happened next? What happened next? Right? What happened now? When she pauses and turns to him, um, answer, he catches her benevolently, right? Um, and kissed her trembling starlit eyes. What a beautiful line that is! Um, in the woods of evening, morrowless, right? It's evening. It's always twilight with no tomorrow. It's the twilight on which the dawn never comes. Now, if that sounds bad, I mean, you know, one could say, like, well, hang on, is that a good thing? Being moralist, like, there's no tomorrow, like, tomorrow's never going to come? Is that ominous? No, no, it's not ominous. And here, I think that Tolkienism is referring to the, uh, the medieval uh, love poetry to medieval love poetry conventions. Um, he doesn't always. Tolkien is not a big fan of the courtly love tradition uh, by any stretch. But he will. <laughs> he will know that one of the um, one of the most frequent motifs of medieval love poetry is the Alba, the lamentation of the dawn. Um, it's a set piece in almost all love poetry of the Middle Ages. Um, after the consummation, it's almost always almost always happens at the end of the first night. The lovers are finally together, and but you know, dawn always comes. Dawn is not your friend when you are a clandestine lover, and the coming, the cruel, inexorable coming of the dawn, will often receive. Sometimes comically, sometimes uh, uh, poetic lamentations of comically uh, inappropriate length, right? Which leads you to think either a, you're totally going to get caught while you're sitting here, you know, speechifying about the dawn, or b, you could have been doing better things during that time. <laughs> I mean, why are you spending so much time talking about how your time is being tragically cut short? Uh, uh, anyway. At least I often think those things when I'm reading these long passages lamenting the coming of the dawn. Uh, I think it is in that sense that uh, they uh, they are in the woods of evening, morrowless, always in this twilit, moonlit uh, place. But the cruel dawn never comes; the dream never ends. Um, you know, Baron is never going to wake from this dream. Till, not that it's literally a dream, b- metaphorically. 
But then we go to the future, right? Till moonlight and till music dies Shall Baron by the elfin maid Dance in the starlight of her eyes In the forest singing sorrowless Morrowless, sorrowless That's pretty awesome, right? Um, and notice how we've got it, we, He doesn't just repeat eyes and eyes, right? He repeats the starlight image In the first half of the poem We have him kissing her trembling starlit eyes, and then uh, Baron uh, is Baron shall dance in the starlight of her eyes. Um, so we see him dancing with her, him drawn into the dance as he was initially compelled, the weariness and the loneliness passing from him, remember at the beginning, um, and we see that uh, passing into this perfect state of sorrowlessness. It's really beautiful, so I'm so glad that we ended happily ever after, except, wait, there's another stanza, and this is a separate stanza. Wherever grass is long and thin, and the leaves of countless years lie thick, and ancient roots wind out and in, as once they did in Doriath, shall go their white feet lilting quick, but never Dairon's music thin be heard beneath the hemlocks thick, since Baron came to Doriath. Hmm. Notice the first impulse, the impulse of the first half of that stanza, is sort of to apply it, right? To kind of move outward. Wherever you find long, thin grass, countless years' worth of leaves, ancient roots winding out and in, you know, like it was back in Doriath, whenever you, wherever you find circumstances like this, their white feet shall go lilting quick, right? You will find... It sounds almost like an invitation to applicability, right? Um, this, you know, Baron and Lu, whether they're going to be literally present, I mean, I, it seems to me that if we just literalize the first half of this stanza, right? Um, Baron and Luthien shall be magically omnipresent in any ancient forests, right? But in younger forests, you won't find them, and they never hit the prairies, right? That seems kind of silly, and I don't think... You know, so again, I think it's, it seems to be more of an invitation to, uh, uh, to application. But, never Dairon's music thin. Shall, shall, but shall go their white feet lilting quick, but never Dairon's music thin be heard beneath the hemlocks thick. We end on a bit of a downer, right? Um, Dairon lost out. And it's not just that Dairon lost out, but we lost Dairon. Remember that the lilting feet of Tenuvio, nice as they were, were only half the picture originally, right? I mean, she had the the flickering feet, and he had the flickering fingers on the on the flute, right? Um, so his magic was the counterpart of her dance, um, and now she dances with Baron. Her dance is in this sense complete, right? She has found her dance partner, and the two of them shall dance forever, morrowless and sorrowless. But, but no, Dairon. The music of Dairon is lost since Baron came to Doriath. You know, this, uh, you will probably remember that in the Fellowship of the Ring, this last stanza goes away. In the forest, singing sorrowless is the end of Aragorn's version of the, of the poem. 
Um, but, uh, um, but, um, in the, in the older version, we do get this sense of lost. Even a happy ending like this, even a crazily unexpected happy ending, even an unprecedentedly happy ending like this, doesn't come without loss, right? There are consequences. There's, uh, there's a price, in a sense, for it. And that, in this case, is the, is the loss of Dairon. Um, This poem is a, as I've said, awesome. But I think this poem is tremendously important. Um, from what I can see, this seems to be the turning point in the story of Baron and Luthien. Um, let me explain what I mean by that. What I mean by that is... Those of you who did the Book of Lost Tales class with me will remember that Baron wasn't human. He was an elf in the Book of Lost Tales version. He had toyed with the idea of making Baron human, but he wasn't human. He 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 went he 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 was kind of weighing in the kind of way he went with elf, right? They were of different races of elves, but you know, so there was still a little bit of like you know there was. They, they had a certain degree of star-crossed lover action going on there, but it was that was not the main element of the story. Um, they still, I mean, they still met the same way. Um, you know, the fundamental narrative of Light as Leaf on Linden Tree happened uh, in uh, in the Book of Lost Tales version. When we were talking about the Book of Lost Tales, I was emphasizing at the time like that it's the fact that Baron is an elf and it. it it, I think it cannot be overstated what a profound impact it has on the Baron and Luthien story. I mean, in the, the Book of Lost Tales version, for all of the familiarity of most of the plot, you can see all of these plot parallels between that and even the published Silmarillion version. Um, you know, this, the Tale of Tenuvial, is, which is the Book of Lost Tales version, is recognizably the Baron and Luthien story. But it's not the Baron and Luthien story. I mean, it's not just like, oh, one little thing changed. Make him a man, and then it's pretty much the same. And it, But it is a profound difference of the story. It makes the whole... It, it makes the whole... Answer to the question, what is this story about? Totally different. Um, and, you know, I can't prove that the writing of this poem is what changed Tolkien's mind, but it kind of looks like that to me. Um, and again, it looks like that to me because of the way he has taken this and placed this um, by by writing this short poem um, in this fairy story mode, right? Um, taking the story of Baron coming across Luthien and Dairon in the woods like he did in the Book of Lost Tales version, but recasting that now as a mortal longing for the unattainable, inaccessible beauty of fairy, and then unexpectedly, unaccountably being granted it, right? When, you know, th that's the spirit of this poem. And when that happens, 
Tolkien never looks back. That becomes the dominant motif of this story all the way through. You know, from from now on. So I, I do think that this uh, um, that this is really the 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 the, the sort of core uh, where the core of the Baron and Luthien story um, comes in. Um, uh, Okay, um, I'm going to move on now because I'm totally not spending the whole class talking about this poem. Um, but um, let's, uh, let's go on and talk about the way of Lathian. Since we have like, gosh, we have 40 minutes left. Let's still talk, let's talk about the way of Lathian, shall we? Um, so we'll start at the beginning. A king there was in the dawn of days, his golden crown did brightly blaze, with ruby red and crystal clear, his meats were sweet, his dishes dear, red robes of silk and ivory throne, and ancient halls of arched stone, and wine and music lavished free, and thirty champions and three, all these he had and heeded not, his daughter dear was Melilot, from dawn to dusk, from sun to sea, no fairer maiden found could be. Her robe was blue as summer skies, but not so blue as were her eyes. Twas sown with golden lilies fair, but none so golden as her hair. Okay. What the heck is going on here? What? what? Remember the context here, okay. What we just read were the first 16 lines of the A text of the Lay of Lathian. So remember remember the context. Oh, hang on a second. I'm, I'm moving forward accidentally here. Remember the context here, right? Okay, so there are two texts of the Lay of Lathian. Um, he wrote a handwritten manuscript, and then he typed it, right? So there's, 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 there's the handwritten bit, and there's the typescript bit. And they go, they end at the same spot. He was ty- This wasn't... He wrote it all out by hand, and then he went back later on and typed it. He was typing it as he he was going like typing it as he went, and he he sometimes did this so that he could circulate the typescript, which he did. He sent this typescript to C.S. Lewis, for instance. Um, we're going to look at C.S. Lewis's commentary on the Way of Lathian later on. Um, but uh, so, so okay, so he's so he's 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 doing this, and uh, this is the beginning of the A text. Okay, this is the beginning of the manuscript version of the Lay of Lathian. So, as far as we can see, this is where the poem began. These are the opening of... So he's, he's sitting down and he's saying, Lay of Lathian, right? So remember where we're, we were in the Lay of the Children of Purim, right? We saw the Lay of Lathian kind of bubbling up and bubbling up. So, so here's Tolkien. He's been like, all right, you know what? Forget about it. Forget it. So I'm going to... I'm just going to... Oh, no, he's not going to sweep the table. I'm, I'm going to take the... the, the Children of Hurin, and I'm going to put it in a neat stack, and I'm going to put it over here. Now, okay, I can't, I can hold back no longer, right? I can't, I, I, the story of Baron and Luthien is just, it's, it's, it's dying to be let out, right? So let's do that. So here he is, um, he's, he's, uh, sitting down to write the Lay of Lathian, and this is what we get. Yana, I know, doesn't it... None so golden as her hair? Luthien is a blonde? 
I mean, seriously? No, wait. But her name isn't even Luthien. Her name is Melilot. Seriously, Tolkien? So, okay, I, I mean... So he sits down and he's like, okay, Baron and Luthien, yeah, well, I, I've been dying to write this story for a long time. So I'm going to write it. But I think I'm going to make a few changes, right? I think I'm not going to... I, yeah... I want Luthien, instead of like that shadowy hair thing she had going on, I want Luthien to be a honey blonde. Yeah, yeah. And Luthien, Tenuviel, you know, that's kind of cool. But no, I think Melilot. That's, that's a much better name, right? And by the way, did you notice? What's her dad's name? What's her dad's name? Melilot's dad? Kelagorm, exactly, yeah, yeah. The, the king, the king is, yeah. Her dad, the king, yeah. Kelagorm, that's a good name. I'll call him Kelagorm. Oh, Kelagorm. Sorry, I'll call him Kelagorm. And uh, and her boyfriend, Baron. Yeah, you know, I can take that or leave that. Uh, what's her boyfriend gonna be? What's her boyfriend gonna be? You're right, Sarah King. Uh, Melilot, Melilot. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, I just uh, the idea of trying to insert that into that stanza. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Um. <laughs> sorry, I'm trying to come up with rhymes for Melilot in the context of that stanza, and they're all coming out really comical in my head. Sorry. Anyway, wh- who's her boyfriend? Her dad is Kelagorm. Who's her boyfriend? In the A text. Maglor! Maglor! Is the name... What is that Baron? Nah, nah. Hey, let's call him Maglor. That's a better name than Baron. Right? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's... I mean... I don't know about you, but when I read this... Um... (laughs) You guys are doing even worse than I am. People are suggesting rhymes now. Uh, uh, Rhymes like... (laughs) Uh, like polyglot, uh, or <laughs> Karina, that's my favorite. Fe- <laughs> Fell a lot. <laughs> she she tries to dance, but she fell a lot. <laughs> oh man, it's awful. <laughs> it's just. <laughs> oh, I can't stop. Stop. I can't. I can't. I absolutely can't. But you see the. You see the problem here. I mean, I read this opening and I'm like, who are you and what have you done with Tolkien, right? I mean, like, honestly, was he on something? I mean, was he thoroughly inebriated? But no, drunken Tolkien would not have made these decisions. I don't even know what on earth could have possessed him. And what's more, neither does Christopher. Look at Christopher's analysis of this. Um, I love Christopher's tone throughout this. He's, he's very understated. <clears throat> An extraordinary feature of the A version is the name Kelligorm given to the king of the Woodland Elves, Thingol. Moreover, in the next canto, the role of Baron is in A played by Maglor, son of Egnor. Now, Egnor was his father's name, or close to his father's name, uh, in the in the Book of Lost Tales version. So that 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 name for Baron's father is not crazy. Maglor instead of Baron, that is crazy. Um, and so here's. Christopher Tolkien coming face to face with the crazy, right? 
The only possible conclusion, strange as it is, is that my father was prepared to abandon Thingol for Keligorm, and, even more astonishing, Baron for Maglor. Both Keligorm and Maglor, as sons of Feanor, have appeared in the tale of the Nauglifering and in the Lay of the Children of Horan. So he points out that just, you know, like a couple years ago, we're just, I mean, he's just been writing the Lay of the Children of Horan, and there were Keligorm and Maglor right there in the poem, and uh, we even met Keligorm in the poem. And, uh, um, and, and, uh, but he's like, nah, 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 forget about it. No, uh, Kelgorm and Maglor have been, uh, you know, sons of Fanor for time immemorial, but what the heck, right? Let's just shake things up a little bit now, right? Um, and again, here's Christopher saying, this appears to be what happened, but he obviously has no explanation for this, Right? The name of the king's daughter in A, Melilot, is also puzzling. And is it the English plant name, as in Melilot Brandybuck, a guest at Bilbo Baggins' farewell party? Already in the second version of the Children of Hurin, Luthien has appeared as the true name of Tenuvio. It is perhaps possible that my father, in fact, began the Lay of Lathian before he stopped work on the Children of Hurin in which case Melilot might be the first true name of Tenuvio displaced by Luthien. But I think that this is extremely unlikely. You see, you see the straw he's grasping at here? So he, he's, he, he's invented this, this, this narrative, right? It's okay. So here's Tolkien. He's writing the Way of the Children of Hurin, and then meanwhile, like under the covers at night, he's already started the Way of Lathian. Now, nothing could be more likely based on what we saw in the second version of the Children of Hurin, right? Totally willing to believe that. So, so, so the idea is, okay, he wrote these first, you know, the first canto of the Lay of Lathian before he got to the bit in the Lay of the Children of Hurin when he named her Luthien, right? So, prior to that point, when he was, like, during the early stage of the overlap... He was like, Melilot, oh yeah, no, forget Tenuvio, it's going to be Melilot. And then he gets to this later point, and he's like, eh, actually, Luthien's kind of better. And that's when he gets to that point in the way of the Children of Horan. It is a theoretical explanation for how this could be, how this could happen. But even he admits it's extremely unlikely that that's how it how it came about. And he goes on to explain, in view of Baron being changed to Maglor, I think that Luthien being changed to Melilot is far more probable. In any event, Baron and Luthien soon appear in the original drafts of the Lay of Luthien. And I love that last sentence, where, you know, Christopher Tolkien, we see him just kind of throw his hands up, right? He's like, um, fortunately, the temporary insanity which appears to have afflicted my father in this period passed quickly, right? So we can all move on and uh, thank our lucky stars that that we did not get the full version of the lay of, of Honey Blonde Melilot, right? Ugh. Okay, so... Um, now... Um, Christopher Tolkien says, the only possible conclusion is that my father was prepared to abandon Thingol for Caligorm. It's not the only possible conclusion. I'm delighted to tell you, I do know one person who has posited a wonderful explanation of how all of these things could happen without Tolkien having been abducted by aliens or anything utterly inexplicable. 
Um, and the, uh, the, the, the brilliant scholar who came up with this idea is none other than our own Alyssa House Thomas, uh, Mythgard student of long standing. In fact, uh, Alyssa, if I'm remembering correctly, I know you're here tonight. Um, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, you uh, posed this, you suggested, th- I mean, I don't know how long ago you came up with it, but you posed this theory to me, as I recall, in the very first Mythgard class that was ever offered in the fall of 2011. We talked about the Lay of Lathian in that class. Um, and I, we got to this this part, and, you know, in my lecture on this part, originally I was like, what the heck? This is just deeply weird. Let's try to move on before we hurt ourselves. Um, and you know, Alyssa very, very, very quietly and meekly was like, actually, I have a suggestion. Um, and it was one of those solutions, which, as soon as I heard it once, it was, um, it was just, uh, obvious. And, uh, and it, 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 to me, it makes absolute perfect sense of everything. And Alyssa's solution, in brief, is these these lines, not these lines, these lines. This isn't the lay of Lathian at all. Go back to the beginning. Look at this again. A king there was in the dawn of days, his golden crown did brightly blaze with ruby red and crystal clear. His meats were sweet, his dishes dear, red robes of silk and ivory thrown in ancient halls of carven stone. Is this even an elvish king? I mean, he's called elvish later, but these lines. Is this describing an elf? It's not obvious that it is describing an elf. Um, When was the last time you heard Tolkien talking about how much an elf's food cost? Right? That's what his dishes dear means. His uh, his meats were sweet, his dishes dear. Um, uh, And by dishes, I'm not even sure if he means the food is expensive or, or the actual vessels that they ate out of were expensive. But in either, in either case, that is not, uh, that's not how Tolkien normally, now, it's not an, un, not an uncommon motif in, in a medieval fairy poetry for the, the, the poet to go off and say, like, so rich a, uh, you know, a, a sheet upon, was upon the bed that, like, no emperor upon earth ever had a finer and that kind of thing. Um, it's not obvious that this is an elf. It sounds like a medieval human monarch. Alyssa's theory is beautifully simple. She says, It kind of sounds like this is what happened. Tolkien, at some point earlier on, started to write a Breton lay. This is a kind of thing Tolkien did a lot. To take a medieval mode, a, a medieval literary mode that he was interested in, and to write in it, to try to compose something in it. He'd already written a Breton lay, the lay of Eotru and Etrun, right? So, who knows what the lay of Melilot was going to end up being about. But anyway, so he, 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 he decides to write this lay in the form of a Breton lay. Um, this is, as, as Alyssa points out, uh, exactly the poetic structure. Uh, rhyming octosyllabic couplets is the sort of the Breton lay mode, poetically speaking. Um, so he's going to tell this, so he's telling the story, we don't know exactly where the story was going to go, but he's going to tell the story of Melilot. Um, now, in that context, the, the stop it, Arthur, stop, please, please stop with the Melilot rhymes, I can't handle it. Um, 
Like, it's... I can't... I, there might be non-comical rhymes you could do, but I don't know. Anyway, um... Uh, 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 <laughs> stop distracting me with those. Anyway, okay, okay, okay. In the context of Tolkien just saying, hey, let's compose a Breton lay, it makes all kinds of sense for him to recycle names, uh, for, for, for him to, to have his, his heroine Melilot and to say, hey, uh, for her, I need a name for her dad. Hey, Caligorm. I like the name Caligorm. I'm going to recycle that one. And her boyfriend, uh, Maglor. Maglor, yeah, like that name. He recycled stuff like that all the time when he's doing things which he doesn't intend to connect. Um, the most egregious example of, um, of his recycling a name like this is when he decides, is the, the original name that he gave to the goblin uh, captain whose head gets knocked off by Bolroar Took in Chapter 1 of The Hobbit. Does everybody remember? Anybody recall? I know Alyssa does, I know several of the rest of you do. Fingolfin, yes. Originally, in the original draft of The Hobbit, the king of the goblins whose head got lopped off uh, by Bolor Took was Fingolfin, because it has the golf joke in it, right? So I get, he's going he's gonna to take and he's going to recycle the name Fingolfin in that context. It, he does that, right? So nothing could be more natural than for him to take two names which he liked, Kelegorm and Maglor, and say, "Hey, my Breton lay of Melilot, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna use these here, right?" Then he, but he never finishes it. Big surprise, right? He writes the opening, but doesn't get any further than the very opening of this Breton lay. So now he goes to write the lay of Lathian, and he takes these opening lines, this opening canto of uh, the lay of Melilot, or whatever the heck it was going to be called. And he's like, I'm just going to repurpose this thing. That, too, is something that he does all the time. And the fact that he would leave so much of it, like even the business with her golden hair, um, it's very typical. Um, uh, It's very typical for uh, Tolkien to make very few changes when he's doing a revision like that. He tends to accommodate the the old lines rather than just ripping them up and totally rewriting them. He his normal habit when he's uh revising and integrating like that is to sort of make as few changes as possible and to make it all work. Um but of course as he continues on, he uh he changes the names back, of course, to Baron and Luthien. I don't believe that Luthien in Tolkien's mind was ever named Melilot. Again, once I felt like the, when, when Alyssa first uh, outlined this theory for me, I felt like I'd been thrown a life preserver. I'm like, oh my gosh, that makes so much more sense. Like, it just... I, I, I literally do not, cannot believe that to- Tolkien ever briefly toyed with the idea of changing Luthien's name to Melilot and making her a blonde. And please don't think I'm in trying to insult blondes here, but the darkness of Luthien's hair is not only thematically important through every version of the Luthien story associated with shadow, indeed even her shadow cloak, which is made from her hair, right? I mean, it's, it's like an important plot element, but more than that, you of course have the, you know, one of the, one of the uh, biographical connections to Tolkien's life that even I consider inescapable, um, and that is the connection with his wife, Edith, whose hair was dark, and, the, you know, whose, uh, 
Um, and you know, th- this moment of Baron meeting Luthien in the woods is associated explicitly by Tolkien with his courtship of his wife on many occasions. I cannot just I, I it is inconceivable, literally inconceivable to me that he ever considered um uh, that he ever considered making her a blonde. Um, now, Alyssa asks in real time here um, a, a, an excellent question. Why didn't Christopher get it? Uh, he has deep knowledge of his father's process. Y- yeah, he does. I mean, Alyssa, the only thing I can think here is that um, two things. One, there may be no surviving manuscript evidence of a fr- of either a free standing any freestanding pre lay of Lathian text for the lay of Melilot. Um uh such that I mean it seems to me quite possible that just Christopher never really thought of that. I mean if you just accept this story within its manuscript context, it looks like it's him him writing the Lay of Lathian, right? But but secondly, um the other thing, the other way, Alyssa, in which this really seems to me like a typical kind of Christopher Tolkien move is he is very, very cautious about speculating about things that his dad did not explicitly say, right? Even, there are even times when a conclusion is like screamingly obvious, I would consider it screamingly obvious, and he's like super tentative, or even skirts it, because it's not like, he can't prove it, it's not so he just leaves it out. Um, that seems to me um, um, that seems to me uh, in that sense, kind of in keeping that he would not even perhaps even be suspicious of something that he didn't, you know, if he didn't... I mean, his dad might well not have mentioned... I mean, goodness, his dad might have forgotten. Who knows? If Who knows when Tolkien wrote the abortive lay of Melilot? I mean, if this theory is true, he might have written that, like, in the late teens, maybe early 20s? I mean, uh, probably not much earlier than the early 20s, but who knows, right? So, I mean, would... You know, would Tolkien have ever mentioned it to Christopher? Gosh, fifty years later, you know, um, it's. Uh, I mean, I could easily imagine Tolkien might have utterly forgotten about this. I mean, he might have utterly forgotten even about the the A manuscript. Um, Christopher is not coming around to to editing the documents of the Lays of Beleriand until many years now after Tolkien's death. It's been well over a decade since J.R.R. Tolkien died. Um, so, been like, what, 15 years or so by the time the, the, the Ways of Balerion comes out? So, you know, it would not seem, it does not, I would say, it does not seem to me necessary to believe that Christopher and Tolkien had had um, conversations about the early stages of the Lay of Lathian. Um, <clears throat> seems to me quite likely that Christopher is just working off of his father's manuscripts. And this is what the manuscript says. And Christopher says, uh, I'm going to stick with what the manuscript says, however crazy it seems, right? Um, anyway, I, uh, um, yeah, yeah, uh, Sharon, 
Uh, Hoff says, uh, uh, <clears throat> and I thoroughly agree, that Awissa is brilliant from stepping away from the text and seeing the obvious. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely, Sharon. That, that's the, definitely has always been my, uh, um, my impression. Interesting. Tom Hillman says, what about the note in The Return of the Shadow, which says that Tolkien considered making Melilot Brandybuck, who is a good dancer, be the, in, be the reincarnation of Luthien? Tom, I would... I would... Um, I would uh, set that to an association once made in Tolkien's mind and never died. Um, I mean, you see that kind of thing. I mean, um, story ideas, character ideas, uh, maybe maybe rejected but never forgotten. Um, so, Tom, that seems to me totally natural. This character who was named Melilot became subsumed in Luthien. But it's like he still has this impulse to make Melilot... Poor Melilot got a bad shake, right? You know, she becomes Luthien, but Melilot herself was rejected, right? Um, So he brings Melilot back, connecting her with Luthien, right? Um, Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, no, see, Tom, I mean, I, I can imagine, uh, I can imagine him, uh, uh, I know he didn't actually write that, but I mean, I can imagine him, like, the fact that the name comes up again, it's totally, like, he, he never, it's, he, he, again, he doesn't forget names, like, lost but not forgotten. It's like the name Bladorthin, right? Bladorthin, which is the original name for Gandalf, right? In the, and not just in the opening draft of The Hobbit, but all the way through, um, uh, almost, I mean, almost all, all the way through the draft, up through the death of the dragon, the wizard is Bladorthin, right? Um, and he drops the name, right? Gandalf, of course, was Thorin. The leader of the dwarves was Gandalf. He shifts the name of Gandalf the dwarf over onto the wizard. The wizard becomes Gandalf. The dwarf becomes Thorin. And, but we have like a law of conservation of names, right? So what about Bladorthin? Bladorthin, who's been the wizard this whole time, he he comes back, right? He gets a mention. King Bladorthin, uh, for whom those spears were made that are still standing in Smaug's treasure hoard when Bilbo goes down there and the dwarves are exploring it and they talk about... They talk about... Uh, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, um, we see... It, he, he doesn't let the name go, so he brings it back up again. So it totally doesn't shock me that there's a hobbit named Melilot. Right. Um, and because, again, poor Melilot vanished, but, uh, but, but, but she's not completely forgotten. Um, anyway, okay. Uh, let's, uh, let's go back then. Take two. To the revision. This is the TypeScript version. This is the version of the story that seems to be completely... Uh, naturalized now, right? Um, you know, he does the typescripts, and now we're uh, we're we're really in the lay of Lathian now. Okay. Uh, oh, by the way, I wanted to sh- before I forget, before I totally leave this behind, um, I'm going to share with you guys um, a copy of Alyssa's paper. If you want to read her argument at length. Uh, she wrote this up eventually um, 
in uh, a Mythgard paper that she wrote a couple semesters ago, and she gave me permission to share it with you. So if you would like to read her argument at length, she will do much better justice to it than I did in my short synopsis. Uh, there you go. You can download it through your control panel there. So, just wanted to share that with you. Um, okay, back to the beginning of the poem. Back to Thingol and Luthien, Baron. A king there was in days of old, ere men yet walked upon the mold. His power was reared in caverns shade, his hand was over glen and glade. His shields were shining as the moon, his lances keen of steel were hewn, of silver gray his crown was wrought, the starlight in his banners caught, and silver thrilled his trumpets long, beneath the stars in challenge strong. Enchantment did his realm enfold, where might and glory, wealth untold, he wielded from his ivory throne in many-pillared halls of stone. Their barrel, pearl, and opal pale, and metal wrought like fish's mail, buckler and corslet, axe and sword, and gleaming spears were laid in hoard. All these he had, and loved them less than a maiden once in Elfiness, for fairer than are born to men, a daughter had he, Luthien. A daughter had he, Melilot. No, just doesn't work. Um, this sounds like an elven king, right? Notice how we have the antiquity of the king. We had that in the first version, but we immediately get that with ere men yet walked upon the mold, right? Um, we get all the, you know, his hand was over, he's, we get him being explicitly associated not only with caverns, but with glen and glade, right? We have uh, um, uh, of the you know the moonlight and the starlight uh, beneath the stars, all these again seems much more elvish now, doesn't it? Um, but good, Brian, I agree that's an important element here. Um, there's strong military imagery. I agree. This is a kind of a surprise. No, not kind of. This is a very surprising description of Thingol. Um, this is a major departure from anything we have seen of Thingol in the past other than in the way of the children of Horan. Um, that is, you know, we, we, this does seem to be contiguous with that, or continuous with that, which is not surprising. But from the point of view of the Book of Lost Tales, we've gotten this character of Thingol. He wasn't called that. He was called Tin Willand before, but nevertheless, you know, that guy, he was a woodland king who had a crown of leaves or of flowers, like the woodland king in The Hobbit, um... But he was also poor and didn't have that much treasure, like the Elven King and the Hobbit. Um, so he's not rich, and he's not super powerful. He rules in Doriath. He still has his awesome wife, but he's not, uh, he's not this guy, right? This guy is extremely wealthy and very powerful. His hand was over Glade... Glen and Glade. That's a really interesting... His power was reared in Kevin's shade. His hand was over Glen and Glade. Uh, the power, the authority of Thingol is what's really emphasized here, right? Um, uh, as, well as, his, as well as his wealth. Uh, any of these lines uh, sound kind of hauntingly familiar to anybody? Anyone find themselves uh, uh, having a, a strange kind of memory experience in listening to this passage. Yeah, Sarah the Dwarf song, right? Uh, 
Many pillared halls of stone, their barrel, pearl, and opal, pale, and metal wrought like fish's mail, buckler and corslet, axe and sword, and shining spears are laid in hoard. Um, that's from the Durin song that Gimli sings in Moria. Or rather, that passage, that stanza, that is given to Gimli in the Durin song in Moria is lifted word for word out of the description of Thingol's Hall here in the Lay of Lathian. Um, and that's kind of amazing. If you remember the context of that passage in the Song of Durin that Gimli sings, um, he talks about the antiquity of Durin and how Durin looked in mirror, mirror and saw a crown of stars appear like gems upon a silver thread above the... Uh, sh- oh, I'm losing a word. Above the shadow of his head? Shoot, I'm losing a word. I almost had it. Anyway, um, so he sees the crown in the mirror, mirror appear, and then we get the description of Moria, and how awesome it is, of of Khazad-dum, of course, I should say, and how awesome it is, and how rich and how powerful, and then we get this stanza, but the context of this stanza is about the craftsmanship of the dwarves. Um, uh, we have the... Um, their relationship with the works of their hands. And that's the list. The list of all the stuff that the dwarves made. Right? But, in context here, (laughs) Josiah says, first they stole his gold, and then they stole his verse. No wonder the elven king is annoyed with the dwarves. Absolutely. Um, uh, Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, It's fascinating to me that, again, it's not that... because. Although in our minds, because we all probably read... I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that all of us read The Lord of the Rings before we read The Lays of Beleriand. Um, uh, It would be fascinating to meet the person who first read The Lays of Beleriand and then The Lord of the Rings. I mean, I guess there's uh, there's, uh, C.S. Lewis and that uh, reviewer from Alan and Unwin, but other than them, I don't think... Anyway, um, I... But since we're familiar with the Lord of the Rings first, it's hard for us not to think of this as kind of a a reference to the dwarves, right? But it's not a reference to the dwarves. Instead, um, uh, um, instead we have the, the... The proper way to say it is that... Isn't it interesting that a passage describing the wealth and the halls of the elven king focused so much on the accumulation of crafted goods that it could be used word for word, could be adapted word for word to a passage describing the craftsmanship of the dwarves and them relishing their works of hand. Um, That is to say, Thingol seems surprising... He's not only surprisingly militaristic and authoritarian and powerful... But hmm, materialistic—it's an unfair word to use. But do you see what I mean? Um, that is all this emphasis on his stuff, right? Look at all the stuff he had. For the dwarves with Durin, it's not just stuff, right? I mean, yeah, they've got stuff, but it's because they made the stuff, right? The emphasis is on the making of the stuff, not just on the hoarding of the stuff. Thingol is just hoarding stuff. 
I mean, presumably the elves are making a lot of it too, but again, the context is not focus on the making, but on the hoarding. Hoard is the word that's actually used there. Um, and Kate Neville points out it's also ironic, considering the eventual relationship between Thingle and the dwarves. Yeah, Kate, in fact, you could almost call it foreshadowing. Um, because the whole hoarding thing is what's going to become an issue for Thingle later on. Um, okay, good. Um, so, again, this is a, a, an eye-opening description of, of Thingle. We get Luthien and Dairon again, as in the poem, uh, as, as that is, as in Light of Leaf on Linden Tree. Uh, there Luthien, the lissom maid, would dance in dell and grassy glade, and music merrily, thin and clear, went down the ways, more fair than ear of mortal men at feast hath heard, and fairer than the song of bird. When leaves were long and grass was green, when Dairon with his fingers lean, as daylight melted into shade, a wandering music sweetly made, enchanted fluting, warbling wild, for love of Thingol's elfin child. Um, we can see uh, the fact that his music is called Thin is interesting. That's an echo of Lightest Leaf on Linden, a direct echo of Lightest Leaf on Linden Tree. Um, but notice the emphasis in this poem, even stronger than it was in Lightest Leaf on Linden Tree, of the, the interconnection between Dairon's number one rated music. Right, he's the greatest musician of all time, as the poem makes clear. He's the foremost of all of the three of the top three musicians ever. Um, uh, of course, you may remember in the published Silmarillion, the top three is reduced to a top two. Right, it's just a, it becomes a it becomes a two horse race between Maglor and Dairon. Uh, poor Tinfang Warble just drops straight out of it. Tinfang Gellion, as he's called here for some reason, um, but um, but anyway. Uh, and uh, Arthur, yeah, I agree. It's a little much that he uh, is said to be warbling. Uh, here's taking even taking over Tin Fang's word. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, Karina, it's it's just like Oh the Hoot, uh, but not quite. That's how one of the the song the the the, the poem entitled Tin Fang Warble has my, one of my favorite first lines of all of Tolkien's poetry. Oh the Hoot, Oh the Hoot, how he trillips on his flute. Um, anyway, um, okay. So, but again, notice the intricate connection, as I said, between Luthien and and Dairon's music. All of his singing, all of his number one rated music is done for love of Thingol's elfin child. The change which happened in the poem in Lies Leaf on Linden Tree is now um, made much more emphatic. In the Book of Lost Tales, Dairon and Luthien were brother and sister. They were the two children of... Uh, of, of, <clears throat> um, of Thingol and Melian... Um, now, uh, he is very plainly, uh, and very firmly, uh, the, uh, the romantic rival of Baron. Um, okay, um, one more. One more. Hey, we got through Canto 1. That's, uh, almost better than I expected. Beginning of Canto. So remember, the beginning of Canto One started with that very impressive Thingol description and his power and his kingdom. Stanza two. 
Far in the north, neath hills of stone, in caverns black, there was a throne by fires illumined underground, that winds of ice with moaning sound made flare and flicker in dark smoke. The wavering bitter coils did choke the sunless airs of dungeons deep, where evil things did crouch and creep. There sat a king, no elfin race, nor mortal blood, nor kindly grace of earth or heaven might he own. Far older, stronger than the stone the world is built of, than the fire that burns within more fierce and dire, and thoughts profound were in his heart, a gloomy power that dwelt apart. <clears throat> Canto 1, we get Thingol. Canto 2, we get Morgoth. Right, King Morgoth. Um, notice the parallels. Authority. Right? Power. Militarism. We're getting to the militarism. We'll see uh, his the weapons that he can command um, in, uh, in the next passage. But uh, um, notice how he is described here. I just love the description, uh, starting at line, what is it, 107? There sat a king, no elfin race, nor mortal blood, nor kindly grace of earth or heaven might he own. All these negatives, right? He's a king. He's not an elf. He's not a mortal. He cannot own, that is, he cannot claim any kindly grace of earth or heaven. If he's none of those things, what is he? Far older, stronger than the stone the world is built of. So he's older and stronger than the stone. He is more fierce and dire than the fire that burns within the earth. And pr thoughts profound were in his heart. Profound strikes me as the theme of this whole description, right? He is profound. He is deep. He is subterranean. He is like the foundations of the earth itself. He is like the dark, but you know, but melting fire that lurks beneath the crust of the earth. Um, you know, deep underground, the world is gnawed by nameless things. Right, uh, the king who is as yet nameless here in this description um, is you know the greatest of those nameless things uh, that gnaw the earth. Um, and um, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, it's uh, I hope you can see my reference in the subtitle there to uh, the tale of two cities. I I'm always, I always think of that at the beginning of the stanza. You know, we get the the way that that that, that Dickens balances. You know, the one king and the other king uh, at the beginning of the tale of two cities. The way that Thingol and Morgoth are sort of poised as these parallel figures. Um, and I agree, Kate. The use of king for Morgoth does seem to put him on a more equal level with Thingol. The description shows that he's way beyond elves or anything else, right? Um, Thingol might have been ruling since before mortals walked upon the mold, but he's not older and stronger than the stone the world is built of, right? Um, but nevertheless, you're right. We do have... I, I mean, I, I, I do think just... even just the calling him King Morgoth, but the parallel... the parallel nature of these descriptions really, for me, makes it uh, makes it impossible not to 
be connecting the two of those and seeing those two together, um, especially since you know sort of Doriath and 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 uh, uh, you know and Fangordrum, you know, and Angband, the um, you know the, the the strongholds of of Thingol and of uh, Morgoth are kind of the sort of the parallel poles, and we get Nargothrond, of course, also as a as a as an important location in this poem. But you've got those two poles. You know, you've got both of them are these sort of impenetrable places. Um, both of them are these sort of. Well, I want to say safe havens, but of course I mean the, that in different senses, right? Uh, Angman isn't safe in the same way that 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 Doriath is safe, but you'd think that Morgoth and his stuff would be as safe in Angband as Thingol and his stuff are, at least as safe as Thingol and his stuff are in Doriath, surrounded by the Girdle of Million. Um, but again, that's that's sort of the whole point. And then you see, you know, Baron uh, comes where mortals are not allowed to come into Doriath, and is, as a consequence, forced to go to where mortals theoretically can't go, or aren't supposed to be able to go, uh, into Angband. Um, so I really love the parallel structure there and the way that, that sort of how much of the poem is set up there. Well, we'll come back to this next time. I want to look at the story of Gorlin, which is new. This is, this is, this is a brand new element of the story, um, and I, I'm really interested in the way that it's depicted here uh, in the poetic version. So I want to talk about Gorlin um, and look a, look a little bit at Baron's flight, and then, of course, we will look at... Uh, um, what since we don't have light as leaf on linden tree to talk about, or uh, the deeply puzzling melalot business at the beginning of uh, at the beginning of the 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 poem to sort through next time, I do hope to move forward a little bit uh, uh, faster. Um, oh, good find a good final point here from Josiah. Uh, Josiah McCoy says. Um, both of the kings go nameless for quite a while in their descriptions, which increases their mythic antagonism. They're not just Thingol and Morgoth. They are the king of Glen and Glade and the king of Hills of Stone. Love that point, Josiah. I think that's, that's an excellent way of thinking about it. Um, and again, it's not that, you know, they're exactly peers, because they're clearly not exactly peers. But, um, but, but I agree. I think that's a really important effect. Okay. We'll come back to Canto 2 next time, and keep reading. Make sure you keep reading on schedule. I think we're going through Canto 8 next time, um, and uh, I do, we are going to move along a little faster next time, uh, so uh, totally, you can count on that. Um, but anyway, I will let you guys go now tonight. Thank you very much uh, for joining me tonight, and I look forward to uh, making some serious progress in the way of Lathium next week. Thanks, everybody. Good night. <laughs>